Having to appear in court is stressful for most people, I think it's fair to say. But imagine having to appear in court in a country where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the rules, you don't have a lawyer, there's a government prosecutor who's arguing that you should be deported, and there's an immigration judge who uses lots of legal terms you don't understand, and who also seems to want you to leave the country. And imagine you're afraid to go back to your home country because you're pretty sure you'll be killed if you do, but no one in immigration court seems willing to listen to your story. That is what U.S. immigration court is like for many non-citizens. Courts generally are intimidating places, but the immigration court system has its own particular serious issues. The number of immigration courts and judges have increased a lot in the past 10 years or so, but so have the number of cases there. And so have the major systemic issues, issues that can have deadly consequences. The immigration court system generally is heavily stacked in favor of the US government, essentially the prosecution in these cases, and stacked against individual non-citizens who have to appear in immigration court. For a non-citizen, having a lawyer represent you in immigration court can really help with this, but if you can't afford a lawyer or you're not lucky enough to get help from a free lawyer, you're on your own. The U.S. government does not pay for a lawyer for you in immigration court the way the government does in criminal cases, even though there is a government prosecutor assigned to every immigration court case. So many non-citizens end up representing themselves in immigration court, which regularly means that their rights are trampled on. So here are a few examples out of the many, many, many examples of this, just to give you an idea of what that might look like. One man was ordered deported just because he had trouble logging on to his video court hearing. In another case, a woman had filled out all of her complicated asylum paperwork on her own, but she hadn't made a copy of her asylum application for the government attorney, and that quickly led to her being ordered deported, even though it turns out she did have a strong case for asylum. So think about that. She was ordered removed to a country where there's a strong chance of her being killed or seriously harmed because she didn't make a photocopy. Even children have to represent themselves in immigration court, which is pretty hard to wrap your head around. In a congressional hearing a few years ago, an immigration judge who trains other immigration judges said that he could teach three and four-year-olds to effectively represent themselves in immigration court. To give you a sense of what that might look like, Here's Lindsay's daughter, Lila, answering questions in a mock immigration court hearing when she was three years old. Can you please state your full name? Yeah. What's your name? Lila. What's your last name? Lila Gray. And where were you born? What country? Um, I don't know. You don't know? Okay. Are you afraid to return to your home country? Yeah. Yeah? If you were removed, would you like to designate a country of removal? Yeah. Okay, what country would that be? Um, pizza. Pizza? Okay. And what country was your mom born in? To, to a baby. Oh, and what country was your dad born in? Um, a chair. Do you have a defense to removability? Yeah. What's that? What's your defense? I'm going to sit down on my favorite chair. I'm Jenny Guilfoyle. And I'm Lindsay Goldford Gray. And this is Inadmissible. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the world of immigration court. 
We're joined today by Matthew Archambault, who's been practicing immigration law for over 20 years. Matthew specializes in representing asylum seekers in immigration court. He's been part of cases that have set precedent for the entire country. And when he's not representing clients, you can find him over at the podcast Redirect, a fellow immigration law show he co-hosts with his colleague, Stephen Robbins. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about immigration court. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so many people in our profession say that being the attorney on an asylum case is like having a death penalty case in a traffic court setting. Why do people say that? Well, not having an extensive amount of experience in traffic court, I think what they mean is, is that, you know, these are really high pressure cases. They have a lot, a lot at stake, you know, a lot of them life or death. I mean, almost always it's life or death. You know, talking about persecution doesn't necessarily have to mean um, that you're, you're facing death, but almost certainly uh, typically it does. And with traffic court, traffic court has this, I guess, a reputation or, or something of being this like kind of fast paced court. People are in and out. Um, there's very little rules of evidence and it's known for volume. You know, a lot of traffic tickets out there and immigration court is run essentially the, the same way, at least at the beginning, right, with the preliminary hearings. And it can feel like we're really just kind of pushing paper around at the beginning and that it's not as formal when you go to, you know, federal court or other types of court. And it does just seem like it is a place to kind of push people through. And, and I think that's really, I don't know if it was designed that way, but I think that's the way, especially recently, the way it's moving. Yeah, I mean, we hear about the quotas and the huge backlogs, and we see cases taking, you know, five, 10 plus years. And so I think that's right in terms of volume and this like heavy desire to just move people through at a very quick pace when in fact, in this circumstance, unlike traffic court, folks, it, it's a life or death situation. I want to put immigration court in context a little bit and compare it to you know, the, the rights that we have and the processes that we see in traffic or criminal court. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the difference between the rights that someone might have in either criminal or traffic court, and then the rights that someone has in immigration court? Maybe not in traffic court. Let's talk about um, criminal court. Obviously, you have the right to an attorney. You have a right to an attorney in both immigration court and criminal court. In, in criminal court, though, you, the right to an attorney is is because of the Sixth Amendment, right? Because of our Constitution. In immigration court, it's be, it's by statute that you have the right to an attorney. A law that could actually be changed, and you will hear conversation that. Um, you know, that's one of the reforms, right? Whenever they talk about immigration reform, we, we naturally think, hey, it's going to be positive, but um, a lot of immigration reform would be negative. And it's, it's one of the changes that they've talked about to take away the right to have an attorney. But in criminal court, you have the right to have an attorney, even if you can't afford one. So if you can't afford the attorney, you have a public defender um, who can um, defend you at no cost to you in immigration court that doesn't exist. So there are every immigrant that goes through removal proceedings or immigration or, you know, basically deportation proceedings will receive a list of low cost or pro bono organizations that can assist them. Um, but very often or not very often, always these organizations are really taxed to the brink and it, people find it very hard to find pro bono help. 
help for free. So typically, um, these people who may have no job, uh, maybe on the verge of homeless or, or potentially or are homeless, are going to have to either pay for an attorney or, or do the case themselves. So that's like the biggest right difference. Um, but other things like there, it, when in removal proceedings, right, you, you are typically if you're applying for asylum or some other type of relief, it's it's really your burden to show that you qualify um, for that relief. And sometimes there are some criminal um, charges or convictions that you've had, or even just arrests that you've had in the past. And oftentimes you talk to people who do criminal defense law in something like a police report. A police report, obviously, is something written by a police officer either on the scene or later on. They're the classic hearsay documents. In a criminal case, they would never, no one would ever even think of, you know, putting a police report into evidence, making that your, your main piece of evidence in your case. But in immigration court, someone, let's say, may have been arrested for shoplifting, for example, um, the police report is going to be used against them, even if they were found not guilty, they're still going to have to explain themselves. So those are kind of the, the biggest differences I see. And it it's it always fun to talk to criminal defense attorneys, um, having them do immigration court cases when they really see these differences. And then things like hearsay, we wouldn't only deal with hearsay, so I don't even know like the proper definition, but basically a, a statement by a third party that you can't cross-examine. Um, for example, they call the I-213s or the information that is gathered from your client at the border from some border patrol agent will be taken as truth. If the border patrol agent says that your client never stated they or claimed they did not have a fear of return to their country and only came to the United States to work for five years and return to their country, which I think we anyone who practices has seen that exact same language on so many of these forms, the judge will take that as true. And you'll talk to your client and your client will be like, no, I, I either I never said anything about a fear, I was never asked, or I told them I was afraid and this is what they put down. So in, in criminal court, they couldn't put in that document unless that Border Patrol agent was there to testify um, to it. But these are things that we kind of have to deal with, among many. So even though the government is trying to get you deported, it's the immigrant's responsibility and burden to prove that they qualify for whatever relief that they're seeking and then we have this documentary evidence and the and lack of rules surrounding that. I mean, you were just mentioning I-213s. I remember there was, you know, a lot of, um, you know, uprising, at least in our field a couple of years ago when it was sort of discovered that Customs and Border Protection was sort of using these this blanket language, as you just mentioned, about, you know, I just want to come here to work. I'm not afraid. And they had been like checking those boxes and using that language for for two year olds, which clearly is false. Well, our our, our friend, I'm mm -hmm. sure she's your friend. She should be everyone's friend. Bridget Cambria um, had a had a case where it was an infant, an infant had on the uninformed that the infant claimed that the infant was coming here to work. And so it does get um, really ridiculous. But the government does have a burden. The government does have a burden to to prove that the person in removal proceedings is removable. 
that they've either have entered the country unlawfully and that they're not a citizen of the United States. A very <laughs> easy uh, burden typically for the government to prove. Oftentimes, immigration court, maybe because of the way it's run, most attorneys will not even bother to try to hold the government to that simple type of, of burden which I really think does a whole disservice to um, to the to the process. But talk more about that if you want. Yeah, I wonder if we should save that for another episode in terms of um, you know <laughs> our ability and willingness of our field to challenge to really hold the governments to their burden and and the courts to to due process. But clearly, we're seeing some you know limited rise in immigration court that even at its best. Um, folks are not are not getting what you know, someone in criminal court would get. I want to go back to the right to an attorney that you mentioned. That while folks in immigration court have a right to an attorney, they don't have a right to a court appointed counsel if they if they can't afford one. Why is is this a big deal? Well, so step back when an immigrant let's say goes to they're caught at the border they're released they go to where they want to live let's say they're going to come to south jersey and live where i live it's a beautiful place um they go to court in up in newark um the newark immigration court which is not a beautiful place well i said it's a beautiful place now i have police activity um, i can hear the sirens <laughs> in the background <laughs> so they go to court and the judge will say hey you know, if the first hearing they'll go without an attorney because they don't have any money to pay for an attorney. And the judge will say, hey, here's a list. You know, you try to find a free attorney. But when you come back, either if you have an attorney, great. If you don't, you're going to have to speak for yourself. And they'll have as part of what they should have is what they call a notice to appear. And a notice of, to appear is written all in English. And it will say that they're not a citizen of the United States. They're a citizen uh, in um, of whatever country they're from. Let's say they're from Guatemala, um, and it says that the the government, you know, you entered usually you entered the country at this and that time um, without permission, and you're removable because of this um, statute in law. And then it will have rights and obligations all written in. Everything's in English, right? It's not they don't give them a copy in Spanish or a copy in Chinese or a copy in Portuguese or whatever language that the, the individual speaks. So that is important because it's an important document. Then let's say they get through that because the judge, uh, let's say they go without an attorney, they can't afford one. The judge should explain to them in very simple terms what's on the document and the rights and obligations. Now, this doesn't always happen. Sometimes the judge simply reads these legal terms to these individuals. It's translated into Spanish or their own language or it should be translated into um, their own language. And then let's say they're going to apply for asylum. They'll say, hey, I'm afraid to go back. Um, I want to apply for asylum. The judge would then likely or should give them what they call a 589. It's a form to apply for asylum. Now, this form is completely in English, not translated. They don't have Spanish versions or Portuguese versions or Russian versions they only have it in English. So then this person, this immigrant, this asylum seeker, asylum seeker will have to take this form and fill it out. And 
you know, they'll probably, obviously they'll have to, if they don't speak English, I'll have to get someone to help them with it. And there are a lot of questions on there that are important that they answer. And to apply for asylum can be, you know, lots of times people talk about political asylum and, you know, oh, I was against my government and my government came to hurt me. I was on a political opposition. You know, that could be a very easy claim to kind of articulate. Everyone kind of understands that or a religious claim. So often we see something called a particular social group, but it's, it's hard to define, right? We could we could sit here for four to five hours describing you know, discuss what is a particular social group. As attorneys, we often have, I mean, I do, I have a hard time defining exactly what particular social group um, Mm -hmm. my clients fall into. So now this person who doesn't have an attorney has to try to articulate that to the judge. And it's, and of course, they're usually doing it in a language that they're not a native speaker of. And so many of at least my clients don't have a high level of education. So it is really a very high, high burden for them. There are some judges out there who are great, who really walk the person through this um, process, really help them out. But there are many judges who are not great. And it's really daunting that someone who is could be very deserving is just overlooked just because they weren't able to you know, have even the minimal amount of help um, that could be available to them. Yeah. And speaking of people who are particularly deserving, I want to ask you about kids. Does this apply to kids too? Yeah, unfortunately, children are not treated that much differently in in our immigration court system. There is um, a judge, he's actually, he's here in my jurisdiction he does detain cases out of york or i don't know the york detention center is closed but his name is judge weiss daniel weiss and he was a supervisor in um, the immigration court system and he testified i believe it was testimony to congress saying that you know give him you know a little bit of time and he and he could teach a four-year-old about immigration law so they could defend themselves in immigration court an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. And, and he is a judge that oversees cases. If he's listening, he must know that was ridiculous. You know, children aren't given anything else. You know, the judges will, I mean, the judges will take off their robes if it, if it's a child is in, in court, you know, that that's pretty much the extent um, of it. I mean, there is a big effort to, make pro bono representation um, for children, um, you know, probably a bigger push than for adults. But there is really, there's nothing in the law um, that really protects children from these proceedings. So you could have, you know, a five-year-old who is here that has to go to and tell an immigration judge while, why they're afraid to go back to their country. Yeah. And to find a particular social group, which I'm sure is real easy for a five-year-old. Oh, yeah. You mentioned the language barrier a moment ago, and then sort of, you know, we just talked about like the legalese barrier of, you know, digging in the weeds to actually sort of articulate the legal grounds for the asylum claim. But I want to talk about sort of other barriers that we may not be thinking about, things like transportation and, and things of that nature. Can you speak to that? What are some other major barriers that immigrants face when, you know, in immigration court proceedings? Well, so immigration courts are 
they are the regional. So, for example, in New Jersey, New Jersey is a relatively small state, and you have the immigration court in Newark, but you'll have people that will live like two hours away. Two hours is pretty much as farthest you can live away from something in, in New Jersey, but they have to get transportation to that court. You know, so it's very common that I have my clients that are from South South Jersey down near the shore who will spend $200 on a Uber or, or taxi to get to the immigration court. But that's pretty doable in, in New Jersey. Other places, you know, the Philadelphia Immigration Court covers all of Pennsylvania and West Virginia and as far in Delaware. So you have people who have to travel five, six, seven hours um, to immigration court. And these are not people that are typically not people that are wealthy that have jobs that they can't really afford to miss. And, and, and these place a huge strain on um, these immigrants as far as one being able to just simply to, to get to the court to have their cases heard. And, and so often um, people will go you know, travel five to six hours for a court that might be five or six minutes long. And oftentimes these courts are canceled at the last minute. People aren't notified. That's kind of a logistical problem that they have, but also to put on your case, right? So if you're claiming asylum, they want corroborated evidence. So what is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? You have a lawyer, the lawyer can help you with that. Did you go to the hospital? Do you have those hospital records? Do you have those police reports from your country? Who knew you back there? Your mom, can you get a letter from your mom? What about your cousin, your cousin that lived with you? All these things, right, that, um, that are important. And what about country conditions, right? You know, do you have articles from your country that could support what your, you know, that shows the, the conditions in your country that make it dangerous for you. Um, you know, that's a lot. I mean, it's a lot for us, right, to do. That's, <laughs> these cases are hard. Uh, we, we spend hours and hours and we spend years compiling this type of evidence, you know, with country conditions. Do you need an expert to talk about your, your case? Um, do you need mental health um, resources to deal with trauma? Um, that you're you're dealing with. And we spend a lot of time referring people to mental health professionals uh, for counseling, not simply for the, the case, right? That's uh, it's always secondary for me, um, but just so they can deal with the trauma. You take a very traumatized person um, who's not had counseling, who's not done any therapy, they're very difficult to have a hearing with, to, to, to go and talk about um, what happened to them. So aside, a lot of us use these reports to support our claims, but for me, that's secondary because I, the person has to be able to talk about these things. So there are a whole host of reasons why people need representation and like doing it on your own, you know, is really, I mean, if you, I think if you look at the statistics, it's denial rate of people who are pro bono is so extremely high compared to someone who's represented. And, and, and that's not simply because we're so brilliant lawyers. We can really kind of, I, I guess the, the, the counter messaging is like, oh, we know what to tell them. We know how to tell them what to say and how to all that. But, you know, we can really guide them through. So most people who are pro bono, unless they have really egregious claims, really clear cut claims and have really good judges are going to lose. Yeah, by pro bono, do you mean pro se? Pro, yeah, yeah, pro se, you're right. Yeah, yeah. people that are there without um, attorneys. 
Yeah. No, I, I, I see those statistics, you know, um, there's a group um, that we were just talking about before we hopped on that we refer to as T-REC um, that keeps statistics. And I think that it's like somewhere between, I mean, depending you on track? if you, yes, sorry, I call it T-REC. You call it track? Yeah, huh? that's what they call themselves. I mean, then I should call them track. Anyway, I call them T-REC. I have you should no talk idea. to Austin Coker. <laughs> I should Who talk to Austin Coker. Yeah. Um, it's somewhere between, I think, like five and 30 per times more likely to win, depending on if you're detained or not detained. And then there was MPP, you know, um, the migrant protection protocols. Um, if you're represented, you're just so much more likely to win. Right. And, and we talk about someone who's detained, right? So someone who's not detained, when we talk about getting these documents from back home, you know, they, you know, you know, they can do that, right? You know, they might understand, yeah, maybe I should get the, those police reports. And oftentimes we have people come to our office who know like, hey, we have all this stuff already. They, so they have an understanding of it. But someone who's detained, it's hard. It's hard to make phone calls are expensive. You know, it's hard for people to communicate with their families. And lots of times their families are busy. You know, their families, you know, they don't have resources to, to get these things. So detained cases are almost like another world um, in the, the harm that they're facing. And it just seems that some of the worst judges are in the detained setting and some of the worst government attorneys, because government attorneys play such a huge part in, in all this, are in the detained setting, um, unfortunately. Yeah, and I want to turn to judges really quick and have you expand on that a little bit more. You had mentioned that, you know, in theory, if someone is pro se, meaning they don't have a lawyer, that the judge is supposed to sort of help them understand and ask questions about their case. And you said that some judges are great, but talk to us about sort of like what the baseline standard is or what you see most of the time. So most of the time people don't see it, right? So and you know, most of the time, the people that are pro se that are there without attorneys, their cases are, are heard after all the attorneys have left. And I would encourage any attorney out there to stick around um, or to make an effort to go to a, a master where there are, are pro ses to see how the judges are handling them. And it can be it can be quite shocking because under the law, you know, this isn't just kind of a wishy geez, I kind of wish he would do this type of thing. The judges are required to explain to the people that are in front of them the charges that are against them in plain language, um, language that they can understand, not simply read in um, what's on the, the legal document. And also they're um, required to explain their rights, that they have the right to examine evidence that the government may have against them. Um, and you know that they do have the right to the attorney, but you know, of course, you're not going to pay that uh, pay for it. But also, the the judges for someone who's pro se are required to develop a record. They are required to explore possible forms of relief that the the individual may have if they are pro se. And very often, judges just don't do this. And and I think it's because they're not being watched. I have an experience recently where I had to go to a, a master calendar hearing in, in, um, in person and I had to wait for a document. Um, so I, I was waiting for the clerk and the judge started the, the pro se part. And it was shocking to me the, the, the treatment. She went through 
<laughs> this one woman who who's from Guatemala, unrepresented, she asked her like, oh, you were here before. I told you, you know, you could get an attorney. You don't have an attorney. So you know, now you have to go forward by yourself. So, you know, I gave you a 589 asylum application. You know, did you fill it out? And she said, I did. And, you know, that was, wow, okay, I mean, this is interesting. So now I'm kind of intrigued. And so she's like, well, can you pass it up? And she gives it up. And she's like, do you have a copy for the government? And she's like, oh, I don't have a copy for the government. And she's like, well, you know, this isn't proper because you need to have a, a copy for the government. And then she says, well, let me read it. And she reads it and it's written in English. And she asks the lady, she's like, how did you fill this out? Because you didn't put down that someone helped you with the translation. And she said, I did it on my phone. And she said, I used an app on my phone, probably Google app or um, Google Translate or something like that. And the judge is like, well, this is improper. I, I, I won't be able to accept this, but let me give the, a copy to the government. And the government reads it and says, oh, well, she's not eligible for asylum for reasons A, B, and C. And the judge is like, yeah, you're not going to be found eligible for asylum in this form, and this isn't proper, so I'm going to have to order you removed. And you, what just happened is this, this woman basically had an asylum hearing by herself where she wasn't even asked any questions. It's completely improper. If you read the, the statute and the regs, it's a completely improper way to, to deal with things. But, you know, uh, presumably this is the way this judge handles her courtroom. And now I represent the woman and, and I saw her claim and she actually does have a, a viable claim. The government attorney read portions and kind of decided not to read portions of her claim. It was pretty much a, a basic domestic violence claim, um, one that unfortunately um, many of us do a lot of um, from Central America. And the judge didn't do the, her basic job. What should have been, and, and what the woman asked was, she says, hey, can you give me a little bit of time? I'll get it translated properly. I'll give the government a copy. Very reasonable very reasonable. And the judge said, no, these are the things. And, and I, I saw the another one, the client I'm representing at his first hearing, um, the judge asked if he spoke Spanish. And he said, I speak a little bit. And she said, do you understand enough to proceed? And he said, not really, no. And she said, well, what do you speak? And I think he spoke mom or catchy or he was from Guatemala. Um, so one of the indigenous languages from there. And then Joe said, well, we don't have one of those uh, translators with us today, so we're just going to proceed in Spanish. And, you know, it's those types of things where <laughs> it's clear. It's not, it's not like, oh, I'm a matter of interpretation. It, it's clear that, you know, she's violating his very limited due process rights. You know, the, the rights are very limited. So, you know, these are things that... You'll see with, you know, pro se, people who are pro se who, who don't have attorneys, when you have judges who are not that committed to due process. And again, there are some judges that are, are very committed to due process um, and would, would think that what I'm talking about is shocking and would not agree with it. Um, unfortunately, I think those judges seem to be in the minority, but, you know, maybe I'm just a very pessimistic and cynical um, person, so.
Well, I mean, I, that's my perception too, just anecdotally. And I guess a question then, you know, it begs the question, what priorities do judges have aside from just the pure administration of justice, meaning that people get full and fair hearings and that they, you know, have due process and that they make fair decisions? Are there, you know, competing priorities that we're seeing with judges? Well, it's, it's to get the cases done. There, it, you know, any casual observer, you know, person who's paying, you know, just a little bit of attention to the immigration court system or immigration system in the United States would know that we have a huge backlog um, in the immigrate, immigration court system. So judges are told that they need to hurry up and get cases done. Um, often cases will take four or five years longer. I have a case on Monday that's been around since 2006, right? Should cases be around that long? No, probably not. You know, sometimes it benefits the client, but oftentimes it, it really hurts the client. You know, the person that I'm talking about in, on Monday that's been around since 2006 should have been able to have her case resolved years and years ago. But for various reasons with the court and everything, it's it's been prolonged. There's a big pressure. There. I don't think there's a quota system now. It's kind of unclear. For a sec- for a while, there was a quota system about how many cases judges were supposed to do. Basically, though, they're supposed to not delay cases. Um, they have two. They have several different tracks. I, and they have this dedicated docket track where the cases are supposed to be done within a year. I think I'm not I'm not exactly clear on it. I have cases that are put onto that docket and other cases that are not on that docket. I don't understand how they differentiate, but there's a lot of pressure on judges to kind of finish the case. And sometimes that's what we want, right? Um, We really want our cases heard. We want them heard fairly. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you don't want cases pushed too quickly. You you have someone who's very traumatized. I want them to go to counseling. I want them to have therapy for a while. I really do. And I want to be able to get those documents from their country. I want to be able to take time to get information from people back home. And it takes a while. And in also, you know, generally speaking, they're not our only client. So we're doing this multiple, multiple times. Um, so it does take a lot of effort. But the pressure on the judges right now, and I think for a while, more leans towards efficiency and getting cases done over due process. Um, They won't admit that, right? They'll admit, oh, well, we can do these efficiently and, and have due process. And I think things can be done efficiently with due process, um, but not collectively. And if the whole goal is efficiency, you're going to, due process is going to go down, um, is going to suffer. Um, so th- that's the main thing that I'm, I'm saying in immigration court. And I, and I think it's getting worse. I, I think it's only gotten worse um, over this administration. Yeah. Well, Matthew, we're really glad to have had you on the show. And Thanks so much for chatting with us. And I have one final question. We've talked a lot about all the different things in immigration court that are problematic, but if you could change one thing about immigration court, what would you change? The existence. What do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, so, so I'm an (laughs) open borders person, so I don't think we should have deportation courts. 
um, yeah, I, I just don't think they, they should exist. And I know the, um, there's been a move towards having what they call Article One judges. I always get confused, you know, having judges that are outside. So um, these nice fancy judges that are not um, an employee of the Department of Justice, that the the same entity that's you know seeking to um, separate families and remove people from the United States. But for me, I for me it's it's like complaining about the referees and thinking that if you just get better referees, the system's going to be better when the system is unjust, unfair, of course, grounded in white supremacy and just unjust at its very, very core. Um, so when people talk about, oh, we have to have these independent judges, these are independent judges that are still implementing unjust, unfair, inhumane laws that break up families that take fathers and mothers away from children that send people back to harm so i i don't think the you know nibbling around the edges is, is really gonna gonna get you anywhere um because the laws suck so badly so it's like bringing in new referees and allowing you know into a to a soccer match where one side's allowed to pick up the ball and run with it um, and the other side is not, you know, and, and that's the rule. And, and, you know, new referees that are nice and impartial aren't going to stop the, the, the unfair imbalance in the absurdity of that type of um, game. So, yeah, so my thing is to abolish it, have open borders, let people live. And um, but apparently we do have open borders now here in the United States. That's why I've been reading. So I guess my wish has come true now that Title 42 is gone. I think that's what has happened. And I gotta go, I gotta go back to Breitbart News and check. Well, a lawsuit was just filed on the the asylum ban. Title 42 is lifted just to put things in context for where we are. And I know we've spent lots of time in previous episodes talking about Title 42. But Matthew, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.